0: Welcome to Scripps Talks. My name is Bob Stewart, and I'm winding down my directorship of the EW Scripps School of Journalism, celebrating with a few more podcasts. And today we have Dave Siff joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. And if you were like me and you were watching the news last night, uh, CNN Center was very much in the spotlight. So I'm interested to hear a little bit what you're hearing from the company, what you're hearing internally.
1: I wasn't at work last night. I did have people from all around the country, including you, Bob, which I appreciated, but friends and former colleagues, too, from New York to L.A. and everywhere in between reaching out to find out if I was okay. I've been working a mix of in the building at home since mid-March, mostly in the building. I work Monday to Friday early in the morning, so I wasn't there. They're cleaning things up downtown. There was damage to the building. The iconic red CNN letters were defaced but to my knowledge that's been cleaned up now where it's uh, it's mid-afternoon here they've done a pretty good and quick job of restoring that as far as i know there's going to be no real impact to our operations i'm scheduled to go back in the building monday morning and i haven't heard that i can't i fully plan to be there monday
0: for those people who didn't watch it last night tell us what your understanding is of what happened I watched
1: a little bit of it on CNN after it started, and I have friends that were down there. Um, Not work friends, but other friends who were there. My understanding is that it started peacefully and then escalated. This is just my opinion. I don't think CNN was a target specifically. That corner, that intersection, downtown Atlanta is a very popular protest spot for anybody who wants to protest. It's just a kind of central location. It's right in the middle of everything. That's sort of right across from Olympic Park. And so that's a a convenient gathering spot for protesters. And I think, you know, CNN is a big visible target. And you had people just bent on destroying things. Everyone saw the pictures of police cars smashed on fire. People destroyed the front of the College Football Hall of Fame, which is a couple blocks down the street. That's my understanding. Not sure exactly how and when it turned from peaceful to violent. There were a lot of police, obviously, in riot gear there were as i understand it outside agitators as i think we know that there have been in many of these cities i read that every single person that was arrested in minneapolis was from out of town so you've got opportunists who just want to use this as an excuse to break stuff and we've seen this over and over in these situations it's sad because it dilutes the message i don't think these outside agitators are particularly interested in the message so much as they just see this as an opportunity to get some aggression out, but, you know, the message is powerful, and unfortunately, it's getting lost.
0: It doesn't seem that this happens very often where the news organization is, you know, becomes the centerpiece of the story, or at least the venue of that news organization and and CNN. I've been in CNN Center many times, although it's been a few years, but I don't think it's changed dramatically since then, but it starts feeling like a big red bullseye of sorts just as an iconic institution
1: definitely and you know anybody at cnn would be the first to tell you that we don't want to be the story we're not the story we had one of our reporters i'm sure everyone saw this get arrested live on the air yesterday morning at around six thirty. he became the story not just him he and his field producer and his photojournalist they did become part of the story and then there was a fox news crew that was attacked outside the white house last night we don't want to be the story unfortunately cnn became part of the story last night it has a bullseye on it. I think there's a lot of hot rhetoric that you'll see online about CNN. But again, I, I really don't think that the protesters last And I don't know that anyone came downtown with it in their mind that we're going to break the front of CNN Center. It's just sort of where they wound up and it was right in front of them. It's unfortunate.
0: It's hard right now to make sense of exactly what's going on across the nation in the wake of George Floyd's death. I think it's going to take us a while to figure out how to move forward, but it certainly has lit a fire in the national conversation. And of course, with this particular presidency, not necessarily calming things down, but perhaps stoking some things, it does seem like a treacherous time period that we're in. And I think it's interesting to be in the news media at this time. I have to believe that CNN is having a lot of internal discussions about how to cover the story.
1: We talk every day. You know, I, I should make clear, I'm at HLN. I work on the Morning Express with Robin Mead, which right now is our only live show on the air because of coronavirus and the staffing reductions that we've had. The two other live news programs that we had on the air were discontinued for the time being for staffing reasons. But yeah, we talk every morning and every afternoon, every evening. It's really a ball that never stops rolling the discussions of how to cover things, and there's always futures to talk about. We're always thinking about the next day and the day after that. It's a tough balancing act to decide how much attention to give certain things and certain people. These are discussions that are ongoing and it's difficult to get it right. We have a very diverse staff, which is great because you get all kinds of perspectives. Men, women, black, white, Asian, gay, straight, everything, all on my team. I find that to be really helpful And enlightening to hear the way different people think that we should attack this and go about it every day. It's challenging always, but it's very satisfying to feel like we got it right when we do, which I hope is most of the time.
0: Tell our listeners what your role is. You've now been with CNN and Headline News for three decades plus, three decades plus a year which seems odd, you know, we go back a long way to your undergraduate days. Right when I started teaching at OU in 87, you were starting your junior year. But you've worked for one company your entire career and risen to the level of senior producer. Talk us through a little bit about what your specific responsibilities are and how you got to that point.
1: Right now, my specific responsibilities are, first of all, getting up at one in the morning every day, which (laughs) you would think at my age and level of seniority, I have people ask me that all the time. Like, can't you get better hours? I mean, Morning Express is a great place to be. It's the flagship show of the network. And I've been back working with that show for about 18 months now. I've worked on numerous shows and in different parts of the building over the years. My responsibilities right now primarily involve oversight of our line producers we have four hours to produce every morning i and my other senior staff members we have a couple of other senior producers on staff and we have an executive producer of course i make myself responsible for having a really firm thorough grasp on all the content that we have in house that takes me a solid 90 minutes in the morning of reading in and watching stuff i'm working all day I'm one of these zero inbox people. I refuse to get buried under email, so I'm constantly looking at work email and keeping up with the news and making sure that I don't fall behind because once you fall behind, it's kind of like like I said, that ball that never stops rolling, you might get run over by it. I'm just constantly trying to keep ahead of things. On a day-to-day basis, I just make sure that I can guide our producers with a firm knowledge of the content that we have to look at their rundowns and say, hey, maybe we should try this or do this, or let's swap this out and put this in, things like that. I top down every single show, which means I'm, I'm reading every script in every show from top to bottom. I will jump in and copy edit. I will consult the copy editors if I see something I think is amiss. And the content ball keeps rolling too through the morning. We're constantly getting new stuff in. I watch CNN, we pull things from their air and turn them around, uh, interviews and things. So really, it's just to kind of have a handle on this giant rolling ball of a show, keep it under control, and get us to the finish line. It's stressful when I feel like we've done a good show. You know, I, I can walk out the door feeling good about it. Um, I, I still feel after all these years that it's a noble mission to do what we do, informing the public. And certainly, the public has many more choices than they did when I started.
0: I feel like what we do is important, so I just try to do it the best we can. I'm going to throw a name out from the past, Don Schultz, who Mm -hmm. was teaching at OU when I arrived, and he was certainly one of your mentors and professors at Ohio University. But he also spent quite a bit of time at Headline News, both during the times he was teaching here and then afterwards. How would you measure his impact on your career?
1: It's really impossible to overstate in that he's responsible for me being here because I would never advise any student to go the way that I did, but three months before graduation, I had no plan. While my friends in Scripps had sent 400 resume tapes to every local station in the country, I hadn't done anything. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what I thought I was going to do. I had grown my hair long, so I wasn't going to be an on-camera person, and I just didn't have a plan for myself And Don, like you mentioned, he had done spring quarter sabbaticals where he went down to CNN and worked there for the spring quarter my junior and senior years. And he called me early in the last quarter and said, hey, they're hiring entry level down here. You should apply. And so I did and I got the job and just like that. So Don is responsible for helping me get my first job, which I've I've been there ever since. So from that standpoint, his impact on my career and my life, it was massive, huge. And, you know, as a student, his and yours both were incredibly big in shaping, you know, how I learned and what I learned and what I took away from it. Scripps was just such a fantastic place to be. I learned so much. Athens is a magical campus, and it was just such a great experience. So the impact of Don and yourself and the school was almost incalculable,
0: really. Those are really kind words, Dave, and I appreciate them. And Don passed away several years ago. I know his impact on alums like you from that time period was very real and, and significant. So I, I definitely wanted to make sure we mentioned his name for anybody from that time period who might be listening to this, uh, to this podcast. When you described what your role is today, it made me think a little bit about what his role was, you know, checking scripts and also doing a lot of uh, writing instruction uh, at Headline News. So I don't know what kind of coaching there still is going on there, but I always think of him when I think of writing coaching at Headline News.
1: That's a key thing. And we do have, we have a wonderful, great copy editor who I work with right now who a couple months before coronavirus hit, she had designed a program to train and mentor our writers. We have a lot of younger people on our staff. Writing for Robin Mead is different. She has a very specific voice in how she wants her scripts to sound. It's news, of course. She's a hard news person. I mean, she is very knowledgeable. She picks up the smallest details that we may have missed. She has a thorough knowledge of the news every day. But she also has her own voice and her own style, which has been very successful. So it's a combination of those things. Coaching still goes on, not as much as I'd like to see. But I always try, just on a daily basis, and we all do this, all us senior people, if I see somebody who really you know, missed the mark with something, it could be better, a script or whatever. I'll, I'll always you know, send them a message, take them aside, point it out. Those things have to be done. I wasn't always so good at that. I would just kind of fix things and move on. But it's really important when you encounter something that's not right to let that person know in a kind, mentally way, just sort of point them out and say, hey, you know, I changed this and here's why I changed it. The infrastructure of the kind of stuff that Don did isn't quite as strong as I'd like it to be, but that's something that we're definitely going to work on. When we all get back in the office, whenever that is, I mean, it might be 2021. But yeah, that's critically important as an ongoing process for everybody.
0: Let's talk about coronavirus and its impact on your operation. How are you managing me? What is the balance between your at-home work and your in-office work? Maybe not just your show, but... More broadly at Headline News and CNN.
1: Everybody's last day in the office, and I don't think this is any coincidence, was Friday the 13th of March. That was the day where I remember that that day as being especially sad because that was the day they announced that the Masters was postponed. I'm a huge golf guy. Since then, personally, I've been mostly in the office. I think I had a couple of weeks of vacation in there since this all started, but I believe I've been home. I worked at home for three weeks, including this past week. And I was in the office for six, I believe was the total. I tend to do better in the office, and I don't mind going in. Uh, Some people don't want to go in for obvious reasons. You know, they're afraid of getting sick. I felt like it's difficult. The first week I worked at home, I'm sitting there at my dining room table at two in the morning with a laptop. And it feels very disconnected, although you know, truth be told, most of what we do can be done from home, writing, copy editing, editing video, all that. The only thing you can't do from home is physically be in the control room. Most of our anchors other than Robin, our sub anchors, business news, sports, entertainment news, weather, have been working from their basements using WebEx. The impact has been, you know, most of our people have not been in the office since March 13th. We have a very limited number of people rotating in and out. That number is going to be bumped up soon. I think in mid-June, they're going to try to increase it by a few, and then again, possibly in September. But this is going to have a seismic impact, not just on our business. I think a lot of businesses have realized that they can reduce their real estate footprint because they've found that they can operate mostly remotely. But, like I said earlier, we have three shows live news. We have Morning Express from 6 to 10, and we have a show called On the Story from 10 to noon, and then True Crime Live from noon to 1, and then we go into tape programming. The latter two of those shows are off the air right now, and their staff are helping us out and working on futures. We've had a, a, ro- a really robust futures team made up of those people. They've got those anchors doing remote interviews during the day, packaging stuff for us. That's been really good. I think ultimately the impact is a lot more people are going to be working from home, possibly on a permanent basis. And our bosses have been paying attention to the fact that we've been killing it yesterday in particular, but doing that with 90% of the staff not in the building. Demonstrating on the one hand, we've demonstrated that it's possible. On the other hand, it's going to really change the way we do things going forward, I think.
0: Well, it is going to be interesting to look back on this time period and see it as a very likely inflection point, not just for the nation in the way that the late 60s was an inflection point and and some other time periods too, but also for the way industries are reconfigured and reorganized. As you said, I'm sure there there are people at CNN who are calculating the savings that could be had by having people work from home, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's a way to calculate the impact on the product itself on what's on the air. I mean, is this sustainable? And I'm asking that rhetorically. I don't expect you to be able to predict that necessarily, but you wonder if this is sustainable, because as you said, you do better going in and being, you know, part of the pack, part of the herd and, uh, You know, will there be a hybrid model where some people work from home and some people who prefer to go in, go in?
1: I think so. I have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea of things being permanently altered. I don't, I can't imagine that we're going to permanently have big plastic partitions up between everybody's desks and things like that forever. I don't think our product has really suffered all that much. But what has suffered, I think, is just the camaraderie and interaction between us, which is really the secret sauce that makes work. You know, I've been there 31 years for a reason. The big reason is the people. It's just a great group. And it's been a lot of different people over the years, obviously, literally hundreds of people that I've known and I've seen come and go and some come back. That is what's missing. We have an open conference line eight hours every day where we're all on the phone with each other. But it's just not the same. I've seen... I'm trying to count in my head, one, two, like maybe eight or ten different people I've seen since that date in mid-March, but the vast majority of my team and the other people around CNN that I know are not there. So, yeah, you feel disconnected from it. Even yesterday, in the midst of everything that was going on, I was sitting, like I said, in my dining room helping turn stuff from CNN's air. And it felt very collaborative. And I felt that rush, you know, it's difficult to replicate the adrenaline rush of breaking news when you're sitting in your house. But I still felt it. I was a little nervous that I wasn't gonna really get something done in time. The deadline pressure is still there. You know, time is constant. The show starts at the top of every hour, whether you're in the control room or in your dining room. So that was there, but I, I miss my colleagues and I miss the back and forth and I miss the face to face. That part I think is not sustainable. The product can be done, whether people will stick around and do it in the way that we're doing it now, I don't know.
0: I also have to believe there aren't too many people who, that you work with who have been there 31 years.
1: No. On my on my team, there is actually a guy who's been there, I think, 34 now. Another OU grad, in fact, his name's Mark Silverberg. I hope he doesn't mind me throwing his name out. But he graduated from OU. I think he's three, four, five years older than me. And he's been there his entire career as well. Yeah, he and I, I think, are the longest term people there right now. There were a couple of others who had been there longer. One retired and the other one moved on to a different network. But yeah, most of the people I work with have been there 10 years or less.
0: During these stressful times, I know that you mentioned you played golf and i have to believe that's probably a good stress reliever although if you if you had a game anything like mine used to be it, it was a, it didn't actually solve stress it just increased it uh, which is why I don't play anymore but i know you also play bass guitar and are a serious musician and i wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the role that music plays in your life as a way to either help with stress or to help with creativity
1: yeah, it's crucial. It's, it's critical. I mean, I have this sort of bass philosophy of life. I, I, I feel like bass playing, that instrument in particular, just ties into everything I do. The attitude of bass playing, where you're sort of the guy in the back, but you're sort of driving the whole thing, but no one really kind of realizes that so much. If you're someone who doesn't really understand music and the role that the bass plays, it's sort of the glue that holds it all together. And that's what I try to be at work, at home, and in the band, too. And I love that role, and I love bass because it's so subversive and mysterious, and it it can be anything. A bass is a full-range instrument. It's not just low notes. You can do so much with it. Coronavirus has had a big impact because I play in a rock band, but we haven't gotten together since late February. I haven't played with people since then, which has been tough. I really kind of thrive on collaboration with my bandmates. Um, I'm not much of a songwriter. I'm a riff writer. But like Dave Grohl said, you know, riffs are easy, songs are hard. So I have a couple of great songwriters and arrangers in my band who take my little ideas and help shape them into real songs. And I have a great drummer that I love playing with, and every bass player will tell you there's nothing better than getting a groove on with a great drummer. So I miss that a lot, but I do play a lot of bass by myself. It makes me happy. It just puts a smile on my face to just pick up one of my guitars and play on it just noodle around or play an actual song one of my band songs or or a popular song or whatever I love it it feels like a part of me it feels when I put a bass on it just kind of feels like it should be there I've been listening to a ton of music I know a lot of people have been listening to music during quarantine and posting their favorite album covers and things like that I've done a lot of listening and tried to kind of dig up some old stuff that I haven't listened to in a while and rediscover it so listening to music playing music it's more important now than ever because we do need that escape you know something to make us feel good and uh, music is definitely that and I miss seeing bands play going to see live music and hopefully that's all going to come back here pretty soon and I know you have you have the same experience in your life with playing music as well
0: Yes, I was going to say that part of retirement for me is getting to spend uh, a lot more time focused on that. And, you know, you've been there 31 years now, and I'm sure at some point you're thinking about what happens after work. And I'm I'm wondering if you're going to become a road musician or uh, will music play a bigger role once you are not working anymore?
1: I'd like it to. That idea of not working anymore seems like some kind of impossible dream for me at this point. It's funny. I've had dinner with a friend uh, recently. We started getting back together with some friends in the neighborhood who we feel like are low risk. He said, "Man, you've been there thirty-one years. Can't you retire?" And I just laughed. I (laughs) (laughs) just—I have a twelve-year-old son, um, so I still gotta send the kid to college. I don't know what's next. I mean, I, I can't be at CNN forever, I don't think. Before I can retire, I think there's going to be a second act of some kind for me. I don't know what that is. But when I'm able to slow down, I don't see myself ever not playing music. I've never been a big cover band kind of guy. I've always played originals. And that's a challenge to get people to care and come out and see original stuff. I'd like to keep playing original music if I can, but whatever presents itself, I mean, if the only opportunities I have to play when I'm older are kind of, you know, a cover band gig, I would happily do that just to keep it alive. I, I definitely plan to play until I'm in the ground for sure. And maybe after, maybe they'll bury me with a bass.
0: That sounds like uh, the name of an album for sure. <laughs> uh, but you've got a lot of basses, so which one would you choose to uh, to be with for Eternity?
1: That's a great question. I've got five right now. I've had more in the past, but gee, wow. I had a base custom-made as a 50th birthday present to myself that's quite a looker. It's uh, headless, for one thing, and it's got a a, a really beautiful piece of wood on the top. I might take that one, or I might just take my Fender Precision, which is really kind of the holy grail, the all-time classic the original and still the best meant sunburst with a tortoiseshell pickguard and a rosewood fretboard, which is just the classic Fender P bass look. And it's in pristine condition after 10 years and just beautiful. So I might, I think maybe that one.
0: Well, just, uh, just for the sake of transparency, I actually played that kind of bass in my uh, first two years of college when I was in a jazz ensemble. So I'm definitely sympathetic with you on that choice of, right. uh, of a bass. Well, Dave Siff, thank you very much for being on this podcast. I know you've got a golf tee time tomorrow, so best of luck on the links tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, let's let's both hope that we're able to rejoin our bands before too much longer and get some sanity again.
1: No doubt. Thanks for having me, Bob. I really appreciate it. It was great talking with you.
0: Dave Siff from Headline News speaking to us from Georgia. Thanks, Dave. Thanks.